I had this feeling of dissatisfaction and I felt really guilty about that because here I am working this six-figure tech job at the hottest startup in the world and I was not completely happy and I couldn't figure Mm -hmm. out why. I couldn't figure out why I still felt like I wasn't making the impact I really wanted to in the world. Hello, welcome to Statement Mondays, where we explore how different women harness their identities at work. I'm your host, Natalie Munster, and if you need a reason to be bold today, here it is. Today is Statement Monday. We have an incredibly fascinating interview today with Paulina Ramos. Paulina was a software engineer at Uber when she first started educating herself pretty deeply on world news and became a volunteer in the Middle East and an activist. I decided to bring her on as a Statement Monday's guest because she is extraordinarily bold with her ability to just turn a thought into some extreme action. She has one core value that drives every single thing she does, and that clarity enables her to be a risk taker. I think you'll find this episode to be particularly thought-provoking, seeing how personal mission and career can be intertwined, and it's also a bit of a different style than my other ones more of a story. And as a reminder, this podcast is designed to challenge the status quo and celebrate different paths and viewpoints on identity. So don't forget that what she talks about are her own views, not mine or the podcasts. And on this note, I have a bi-weekly email newsletter behind the scenes of Statement Mondays that used to be just friends and family, but I'm opening it up now to anyone who wants to receive it. My latest email talks about my challenges with how to frame an interview that's this powerful, the one that you're about to hear. So if that piques your interest, go to our website, statementmondays.com, and you can add your email on our homepage. All right, so let's jump into the interview. And I want to define two terms. NGO stands for non-governmental organization, often related to social or political issues. And an expat is a fancy abbreviation for someone living outside their native country. Here we go. Hey, Paulina, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Natalie. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. So the first thing I want to know is who are you? Can you introduce yourself to us? Sure. So my name is Paulina Ramos. I am a software engineer and an activist. I was born in the Philippines and moved to the Bay Area in California when I was six. So I grew up in a very diverse and liberal city in the U.S., Um, then went to study computer science at UC Berkeley, Um, and after undergrad, went on to work as a software engineer at Uber for about four years. And so where are you calling in from, Paulina? (laughs) I am currently in Erbil in Iraq. Uh, It is actually the, the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And I was previously in New York City before coming over here. Well, I'm so excited to hear how you have found yourself in Iraq at the moment. To kick it off, uh, what is your public identity? That's a really interesting question because I've grappled a lot with identity issues growing up, especially being an Asian American. And I always kind of accepted that my identity is fluid and that I am not going to 
box myself into certain labels. But that being said, I believe that every person does have a core identity or some core value that is a constant in their lives. And Mm -hmm. I would say a public identity I try to exude is just a person that is full of love and compassion. (laughs) It sounds Mm -hmm. a bit vague and cliche or cheesy, but I try to really let love guide my decision making and and my principles. And that kind of led me to be uh, a humanitarian and led Mm -hmm. to my activism today. I really love that you've identified one key driving value and then you center all of your decisions and uh and what you do around that so a lot of respect for that Paulina yeah thank you so why did you go into software engineering like what were the months or years right out of college like for Mm. you yeah I really liked the aspect of building things out of nothing And when I took my first intro to CS course at Berkeley, my mind was just Mm -hmm. blown. And I was like, wait, I can just type random (laughs) things on the computer screen and make tangible like applications out of it. (laughs) And um, I felt that uh, because I am a very human centered person, if I could go Mm -hmm. and build things that make people's lives easier, that they can actually tangibly interact with, that was um, a path I wanted to pursue. And so I would so much love to hear about your activism and your opinions there. So let's start off with why did you end up leaving Uber? Did something in your mind click? Yeah. So like a lot of new grads out of college, I was very hungry to learn. I was just eager to get my career going and I was willing to put in as many hours as I could to Mm -hmm. do that. And I was very focused on my career. I also had a lot of student debt that I didn't need to pay off. So that was my, my goals in life at the time were, were very like clear cut, like focus on career, pay off loans and just live a good life <laughs> as a Silicon mm-hmm. Valley engineer. Yeah. And about like, I would say two, yeah, two years into it, I had this feeling of dissatisfaction and I felt really guilty about that because here I am working this six-figure tech job at the hottest startup in the world, and I was not completely happy, and I couldn't figure Mm -hmm. out why. I couldn't figure out why I still felt like I wasn't making the impact I really wanted to in the world. And Mm -hmm. like, I just, I just asked myself, like, what else? Like, what else? (laughs) And I I, I feel that (laughs) totally. Yeah. And I would ask my colleagues this question, too, of like, what are your aspirations in life beyond your career? And nobody could really give me a straight answer. And I kind of felt like we were all on autopilot. It's just like, Mm -hmm. let's keep making really good money and having fun. And of course, there were some colleagues that ended up starting their own companies or becoming entrepreneurs. And that, you know, hit the aspirational checkmark for them. But it was still Mm -hmm. very like, career centric and I was like okay I felt like we were living in a bubble in in Mm -hmm. this Bay Area Silicon Valley bubble so I hear you 100 (laughs) percent yeah and and I I loved my experience growing up in the Bay Area but it was very homogenous and people kind Mm -hmm. of had the same perspectives and viewpoints 
And I think up until that point, I snoozed the news. I didn't really pay attention to what was going on outside of my Bay Area bubble. And Mm -hmm. so 2016, and I was like, okay, I have to wake up and pay attention. I started becoming more interested in world affairs and politics. So I started reading a lot. And one thing in particular that I kept seeing as a recurring theme in the news was the war in Syria. And uh, I kept hearing, like, we have U.S. troops in Syria. There are people, like, dying over there. And I, and I was just so confused. I was like, why are we caught up in yet another war in the Middle East? Did we not learn our lesson in Afghanistan or Iraq? Like, why are we in Syria? And so I started trying to read articles online as to why we were there. And I just really couldn't piece it in my head. And I started asking other people, other Americans, I was like, do you know why we're like, what's going on in Syria? Why we're there? And then nobody could give me an answer. They're and like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, they're like oil, question mark. And some people even were like, wait, there's a we're at war with Syria right now. And I'm like, Oh, my God, I think we're all like, asleep right now, like all Americans wow. are asleep. And so I want to know what's going on over there. Like, I just want to know why, mm-hmm. why we're there and why 13.5 million Syrian refugees are suffering. And, and this, this theme too, of like, why is it that I'm living this cushy Silicon Valley lifestyle while people are suffering a half a world away? I, mm-hmm. I just didn't understand. And so In 2017, I decided to take a sabbatical at Uber. I was fortunate enough that I had enough tenure and like my manager trusted me enough to take my sabbatical and sabbaticals are at Uber around like four months. Um, Okay. Wow. That's a lot. That's a big chunk of time. I know. I was really grateful. Actually, I was like, I need to get to the bottom of what's going on and why there's so many Syrian refugees and I want to help them. I had this just innate, like humanitarian drive that I had to go and just put myself in the, in the context, in the Middle East, talking to people on the ground, because I was not satisfied with the answers I was getting from the New York Times or BBC, or just these articles that were so abstract and kind of confusing. Yeah. So what did you end up doing on this sabbatical? Yeah, based on my research, Jordan was among the safest countries, especially for expats. And it's a neighbor of Syria. So a lot of uh, refugees poured over to Jordan and there's a there are many refugee camps. So I decided to go and volunteer there. And I moved to Amman, which is the capital of Jordan, in 2017. And I, I also enrolled in an Arabic school so that I could Mm -hmm. learn the language and speak with refugees and hear their stories. Um, Arabic is one of the hardest languages in the world. So that was a very ambitious, um, lofty goal that I had of like, yeah, let me just (laughs) land here, learn Arabic and make friends and talk to people. (laughs) Like, that's not what happened. I was just fumbling and I ended up learning like a formal uh, the formal version of Arabic, which was different uh, from the spoken dialect that was spoken in mm-hmm. the camps. So there was a lot of <laughs> miscommunication there. But overall, what I ended up doing for four months in Jordan, besides learning Arabic, was I 
first I was an English teacher in the in Amman and I was teaching English to Syrian and Iraqi refugees. And then I applied to volunteer at an NGO that was actually stationed at the refugee camps near the the border of Syria. And these camps are very tight in security and they don't just let anybody in willy-nilly. I had to give a proposal as to why I wanted to be granted access inside the camps. So given that I was like, I was fine teaching English, but I didn't want to just go to the camps to teach English. I wanted to do something Mm -hmm. different that no other volunteer had done and something that leveraged my existing skill set, and that was engineering. So I came up with a proposal to teach Syrian refugee children how to code and specifically how to build Android apps. (laughs) And uh, I had to come up with a curriculum from the ground up and I had to be very specific with my asks of like, here's the equipment that I need from the NGO Mm. in order to do this. Here's how long I want to run this program and here's like the age group that I'm targeting. So I worked with an NGO called Relief International and I sat down with them and they loved my proposal. And luckily I was lucky enough at the time that they had a pile of Samsung Android tablets that were just sitting there untouched and unused. So I was like, yeah, give me those tablets. Let's go and um, <laughs> set up like a little coding boot camp. Uh the way I structured my coding classes were first hour is a lecture which my translator would help translate it like verbally Mm -hmm. and then the second half was a hands-on lab like okay today we're going to make a ball game where you flick a ball across the screen so I would have my roommate back in Amman um who was very fluent in Arabic like proofread my exercises (laughs) for me and make sure they were right So because I was living in the capital of Amman, Jordan, and I was teaching at the border of Syria and and Jordan, it was like every day I would have to wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning, get on a bus, go to the border for about a two, three hour bus ride, and then teach two shifts, one for the the boys in the morning and one for the girls in the afternoon um, to respect local cultural customs that I cannot Mm. teach a mixed gender classroom. My students were about age 13, 14, 15. And so I taught about a group of 22 students. And that went on for about two months. Yeah, you were only there for four, four, four months. And this is wild for me to to think that you did all of this in a span of two months, even Uh, like this sounds like at least a year endeavor. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot of the the grunt work was the planning part. And so mm-hmm. I wished I could have taught the full four months, but I was just so amazed by the brilliance and intelligence of my students, how mm-hmm. hungry they were to learn, how fast they learned, and how full of hope and optimism they were about like, hey, I, I'm coming from a war-torn country and mm-hmm. the future looks bleak, but this excites me like maybe I have a a career in software engineering and I remember one of my students moms came to my class and at the end of my class she pulled me aside and she was getting teary-eyed and just said thank you so much for 
holding these classes, like ever since you came to the camps, all my son can talk about is you and your classes oh. and how he, he wants to be a software engineer, just like Miss Paulina. <laughs> and uh, Wow. And, yeah. This must have fun. had a huge, a huge impact on you. Could you even go back to the U.S.? knowing that you had made such an impact in this place where you spent even so little time? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, it was really difficult to leave. I had to leave around end of December 2017 because mm -hmm. my sabbatical ended. And I was also still processing a lot of what was happening. Like, I barely skimmed the surface <laughs> with my experiences. And to be frank, when you are working with children with trauma and you're constantly mm -hmm. surrounded with in an environment full of trauma you also experience what they call vicarious trauma and because I'm an em a heavy empath I feel things a lot deeper <laughs> I, I believe than a lot of wow. people and I also was given restrictions to not you know form not to not get too close to my students on an, an emotional level like it was a lot and I wasn't ready yet to commit my whole life to that. So mm -hmm. when my sabbatical ended, I went back to the U.S. as I promised Uber I would do. And in yeah. January 2018, I went back to work and it was really hard to contact switch after such an experience and be back at your desk, like writing code and going yeah. to meetings and talking to your PMs. And so... Obviously, everyone was like, whoa, what happened in your sabbatical? Tell me everything. And so I started, um, because I found myself repeating a lot of stories, I decided to make a PowerPoint presentation and I booked like a conference room one day and invited like a bunch of my teammates and other people mm -hmm. at, at Uber who were interested. There were like 60 people, I think, that came to my talk. Wow. To learn about what my yeah what I did in, in Jordan and after that I felt this extreme it's 2018 now and I felt this extreme cognitive dissonance of like I really want to go back to the Middle East because I think I touched on something really special there and I felt mm -hmm. so happy and alive and I felt like I was making more of an impact being on the ground interacting and uh, teaching than I mm -hmm. did like writing a few lines of code a day and like you know fixing a bug yeah. <laughs> uh, so and you and you were able to find that just by questioning you know what what is happening in the world and what do people have blinders to that I can go and explore and it sounds like you're centering your future around it I still had so many questions that were unanswered, by the way, like me, four months in Jordan was not enough to have a full understanding of how the Syrian war came about. And yeah. so I wanted to go back because I had so many questions left. Did you have a personal connection with Syria at all? No, like, not did at you, all. Yeah, and no connection. <laughs> wow. No, I, I never, I didn't know any Syrians prior to this. And that's actually something that my mom would always harp on she was like why are you so keen on helping people that you're not even related to like you're not even Syrian yeah. you're Filipino and I'm like yeah but I believe in the concept of the human family and that we should still help and protect and love one another despite these arbitrary national borders that divide us mm -hmm. and so drawing back to the concept of love um, that I operate on, and I was mm -hmm. really hurting 
I was like, I don't understand why 13.5 million people are just living in camps and starving and not having a future. Like, why? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so I decided that this is it. Like, I want to go back and just dig deeper into that experience. And there was something there something special I I called it my little spark of madness (laughs) um I have a little spark of madness like it was very irrational and and kind of insane to just like drop everything and like go you know work in a refugee camp even for a few months that Mm -hmm. was dangerous um and I'm like you know what I'm gonna keep chasing that little spark of madness so in uh 2018 summer I decided to quit Uber and move to Lebanon and the reason why I went to Lebanon instead of going back to Jordan is because I wanted to see how Lebanon a different country handled the influx of Syrian refugees because they Mm -hmm. differed in each country. And to top it off, I had gotten accepted into a volunteer program in Lebanon where I was to provide psychosocial support for children with trauma um, through like art therapy and English classes Mm. and, and just kind of these cathartic activities. And that was interesting to me because I have never had never worked with children. In in, in Jordan, my students I mentioned were teenagers. So mm-hmm. I was interested too in like the impact uh what trauma looked like in children. And yeah. that's how I ended up in Lebanon. Wow. Oh my gosh, where do you even go from here? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so then how have those experiences in the Middle East really mm-hmm. strengthened or changed your values or your opinions mm-hmm. as they are today? That's a great question because it actually leads into what happened in Lebanon with my experience there. Um, I had the same exact goals. And what I ended up kind of realizing was there was this theme that dissatisfaction crept up again of like how come I don't really feel like I'm making an impact like in Lebanon I was doing a a bunch of random things I wasn't teaching Android app development like I did in Jordan I was actually Mm -hmm. just like volunteering with different NGOs helping them run their schools for example um, Mm -hmm. teaching and as I mentioned doing the psychosocial support and I felt like this doesn't really scale because I'm just one person running around doing these things and my brain started thinking about okay what if I do what I did in Jordan and I start teaching how like children how to code can I do that or maybe what if I start my own NGO my own nonprofit? I I, I really was kind of like I guess looking for purpose Mm-hmm. in in staying justifying why I was in the Middle East and after 6 months in Lebanon which is far longer than the 4 months in Jordan I befriended Syrian refugees that were my age and that was something that mm-hmm. didn't happen in Jordan um and seeing the crisis the war through their perspective was so much different because they had aspirations just like I did, like they wanted to pursue higher education, go to a good university and get a good job. But unfortunately, the war 
it disrupted their education and they had to flee and go to another country, which was Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And this was really fascinating to me. And I also got into a romantic relationship with a Syrian refugee when I was in Lebanon. Um, oh, and no. so all of a sudden, like I had a different insight into the crisis. And I learned that, and this is varying opinion from amongst different people, but that NGOs, it's not that they make the problem worse per se, but that if I truly wanted to be impactful and effective in erasing this conflict, mm-hmm. teaching English or like providing trauma support for children through NGOs was not like going to be the most impactful. Um, what would be more impactful is if I pressured my local, state, and federal politicians in the U.S. to have anti-war foreign policies, to elect Mm. people into office that are not going to give congressional approval to go bomb like black and brown bodies abroad. Starting really at the root, at the source rather than the consequence. Exactly. And so I was like, wait, you're telling me that the answer I was looking for all this time was back home. Like I have to go back <laughs> like to the belly of the Whoa. beast and like, yeah, yeah. Like I have to go to the belly of the beast and fight it from the inside. And that's how I make impact. And Ugh. yeah, that was basically the takeaway I got from Lebanon. And wow. it's not, it's not a, it's not a sexy answer. Right. Cause it makes you feel so good to be like, yeah, I, I, you can glorify yourself in a sense of like, yeah, I went to the, I worked in a refugee camp. It was really dangerous. I did this. Mm-hmm. I taught children. And it's all very moving. And I again, I'm not regretting anything I did in Jordan or in Lebanon. But the the takeaway I got from being a, an American expat who had kind of this almost a, a Western savior complex going into this region was that I should just stay out of it. <laughs> and wow. just like, yeah, fight it from the root. So, <laughs> yeah, wow. that's not the answer. I mean, that's that very people... self-aware for you to realize even that you had some of that complex. Even if you were acting out of love and it wasn't an act of volunteerism, you you genuinely yeah. wanted to make an impact, yet still uh, the best way of doing so is back home. Exactly. And I think that a lot of it, too, is especially for us, like software engineers who are also like went to like UC Berkeley and Stanford and are fed this entrepreneurial framework of like, you see a problem, you frame the problem, and then you take action steps to attack the problem, whether it's like Mm -hmm. creating your own startup or creating your own nonprofit or NGO. And I really, really thought that at the end of my journey in the Middle East, I was going to found my own NGO or my own nonprofit wow. that had like a social good mission. And I was going to save a bunch of children. And that's just not what happened. I just learned so much more about geopolitics and about how there's just bigger players <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in this in this scenario. Um, the Syrian refugee crisis is like much bigger than myself, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it was a very humiliating revel. Uh, sorry, um, uh, humbling revelation to have been told that. Let's take a break here. So, where do I even start? I mean, this is insane. Paulina is a rare breed of person 
who is truly driven by a search for meaning. And I can just imagine this conflict behind her eyes as she's back in the office telling her coworkers about her sabbatical. And I've added her presentation to my website, actually, so you can find it at statementmondays.com. Anyway, some people might describe it as an eye-opening experience that they'll never forget, but there was more weight in it for her. She's impressive in her ability to focus so intently on one goal, on one big question, and she won't stop until she answers it. So unlike other Statement Monday's guests, she's showing her personality and her individuality at work by actually taking a break from the workplace. In fact, I'm not even sure I can say which is her primary job, software engineer or activist. She takes on whatever role that she thinks she can make the biggest difference in. And I don't even know how I would be able to do a 9-to-5 tech job again after an experience and mindset shift like Paulina's. So let's keep going. So you started (laughs) off a software engineer at Uber, and now you're back in the U.S. after having been in Lebanon, and it sounds like you're an entirely different person. (laughs) And so like, then what? Did you go back to something you knew very well, or did you pursue this new like passion that you've discovered and actually try to make a difference in the ways that you could um to be honest I actually fell into a depression after leaving Lebanon I had a lot of feelings of guilt like I'm over here in a refugee camp to help people but also it's because it makes me feel good as a person Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not going to lie, like there were those feelings of like this positive feedback loop of like, I feel good because I think I'm doing something good. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, I went to the Middle East with very little knowledge and understanding of the political conditions that led to the US launching this war in, in Syria and getting involved. And in retro, in hindsight, I should have probably done a bit more research. However, I'm not faulting myself for 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 this for my decisions because I'm a very experiential person and I like just like diving into the problem and like being mm-hmm. on the ground and seeing things for myself. But it's kind of like there's a problem that you've been trying to solve for like 3 years and then you realize that you're part of the problem. <laughs> um, in a sense, I was like, "Wait, oh my gosh, hold on." As an American, you want to believe that your government and your state is benevolent, you know, especially as an immigrant, since Mm -hmm. we're sold like this concept of the American dream. But talking to people who are not Mm -hmm. (laughs) in your social orbit, like all the Syrians that I befriended abroad, all the refugees whose stories I heard, you get a completely different perspective and you realize that you've been gaslit all this time. So it was a really shocking thing for me. And I fell into a depression and went back to the U.S. and had to really sit with that for a Mm -hmm. very long time and be like, oh, my God, what do I do now? And I fell into this feeling of helplessness where I was like, I don't ever want to go back to the Middle East, actually, is what I told myself. I was like, I'm just going to stay put in the U.S. and then try to, like, educate myself more on politics and attack it from there you know and also I needed to get a you know earn income again because I had been unemployed for for about Mm -hmm. half a year um even though I had other job offers I was gonna go back to Uber for a while and just like 
it's almost like I was punishing myself, perhaps, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. I was like, I'm just going to go back to my old lifestyle and try not to do this heroic, life-saving thing. And this is now 2019. I'm in New York City. I am back at Uber. I'm back at my desk job. Um feeling like these weird feelings of guilt and ignorance. And at the same time, I also want to mention I'm in a long distance relationship with my boyfriend, who is a Syrian refugee, and he Mm. stayed in Lebanon. But I was just processing like that was it. Mm. I was processing, I was reflecting. But to be honest, I was really confused. I was like, I don't know where to like, I don't even know where to put my energy into anymore, because I really do love tech and engineering. I like building stuff, but I also really like helping people. So you cut um, yourself a break. Yeah, in, in a sense, I and I think about like, at the end of the day, human beings all no matter where you are in the world, we all want the same things. We want a roof over our heads to be able to like eat and be loved and seen and cared for by other humans. Mm-hmm. Like this is a common thread, no matter where you are in the world. And I, I'm not going to go around and being like, why don't more Americans care about what's happening in the Middle East? Like I was angry and saying that for a really long time. And yeah. I I can't hold on to that anger because I myself was also like propagandized by US media and it took me three years (laughs) to realize that so how who am I to go around and being like why are you working at Google and making all this money when there's like children in Yemen starving like that that doesn't help anybody right so uh, I guess what I became (laughs) from all this experience was like an activist that is anti-imperialist and for Black, Indigenous people of color and for the liberation of all, you know, BIPOC peoples and for anti-colonialist views and an activist that fights for racial justice and the humanization of Black and brown bodies abroad. And um, now this is end of 2019, where Mm -hmm. I'm starting to like, okay, my depression is gone. I'm like, this is the activist that I have shaped myself to be. But I'm in New York City. And then given that like, I sort of solidified my political views at this point, and I'm very, Mm -hmm. I'm a a lot more firm in kind of how I want to approach my activism. Mm -hmm. I was very satisfied with that. And I could do that while working uh, a corporate job. It's fine. I could, I could compartmentalize those two things. Mm, um, that's a skill and not feel shitty it's definitely yeah and not yeah feel something shitty I'm sure it. you had to learn <laughs> yeah yeah and and for a lot of people that's actually common where like a job becomes a means to an end and not actually mm-hmm. the place where you self-actualize mm-hmm. and that's fine some people could do that others can't and they're like no I have to go and you know start my own company or join a company that aligns with my values and that's fine too mm-hmm. there's really no right or wrong answer in my opinion So then uh, 2020 happens, and I also want to preface this by saying that I had planned to finally quit Uber, like, no turning back this time, um, the summer of 2020. (laughs) This is pre-COVID. I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to just um, take some time to think about, like, how I want to be involved in tech, and... You know, I also like 
developed a really, really strong interest in independent journalism and geopolitics. And I wanted to Mm -hmm. take some time to do more reading, like just reading books, I feel like is a lost art because we're so busy all the time and we have like screens in front of our faces. But um, and then something bigger happened, right? Black Lives Matter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting because um, I quit Uber like I, I officially quit no turning back about three days before George Floyd's public lynching in Minneapolis and I was not expecting to spend the whole summer marching in the streets and the pandemic also exacerbated and highlighted a lot of the issues of our current economic and social structures like you know not having universal health care not having mm-hmm. UBI universal basic income like mass incarceration. Uh, And so these were topics I was already interested in and that Mm -hmm. I was already well aware that they were happening in the US. So when Black Lives Matter started, I had just quit my job, Mm -hmm. which was actually like considered really insane by a lot of people. They were like, Mm -hmm. you quit your job during a pandemic. Yeah, during the pandemic. Everyone else is, (laughs) yeah, everyone else is trying to like hold on and like not get laid off during an economic recession. But I have learned to kind of like stick with my own plan and trust my own intuition. So I was marching in the streets of New York City almost every day from June to August, speaking out against institutional, structural and systemic racism in the U.S. that is also interlinked with the oppression abroad in the Middle East, in Africa. Like these are not separate issues. And that's why I was so passionate about Black Lives Matter. I took it upon myself to join different activist groups in New York City and participate in a lot of dialogue over Zoom as well and give my internationalist perspective of like, hey, Mm. this is also linked to what's going on abroad. Let's unite our struggles. And I I learned the importance of mutual aid and community and how when the state fails to provide these basic necessities for the common people, like you turn to your local community and you help each other. And Mm -hmm. these themes like resonated with me so much because I had already had this value of of love and compassion for the human family. And almost like a light bulb went off in my head of like, wow, my activism can take so many different shapes and forms. And I don't necessarily have to be, you know, like on the ground in in the Middle East. But anyway, that aside, I know it's ironic to like say that now that I'm back in, I'm back in the Middle East. and I'm in Iraq. You're back. um, (laughs) Even though you said you would never go back. (laughs) I know. I was like, no, I'm not. But um, Yeah, I decided to go back because I wanted to spend the pandemic with my boyfriend, who I mentioned is a Syrian refugee, and I'm with him right now. And it's really interesting because this is the first time that I've been back in the Middle East, and I don't have this like white savior complex hat on where I'm like going to go and volunteer with an NGO. Like, I'm just here because I love this human being. Um, And I still feel like you know, even though I'm not like volunteering at a refugee camp here, I I still feel 
that I am living true to my authentic value of love. Yeah. Because I came here <laughs> out of love. Wow. Well, thank you so much for telling me, I mean, your whole story. You're welcome. I know that was a lot. Even when I say this aloud, like, I even like have to take a deep breath and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like that was my life for the past three years. It's a lot. <laughs> and it's, it's not normal. It's really not normal. It's, it's unconventional in the most like mm-hmm. almost like insane sense. And yeah. um, <laughs> I think but it's that so I'm you so... like it's you, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. It is. It's almost like normalized for me, I guess. <laughs> well, I have a handful of shorter questions that I would really love to ask you. Can you tell me about a moment that you felt invincible in the past few years? Mm. Yeah, I would say when I was in Jordan and I had decided to just start my own coding boot camp out of nothing (laughs) in a refugee camp, when you're really, really passionate about something, you become fearless and unapologetic about pursuing that passion. And at the time, I was really, really passionate about teaching and about helping refugees in, in the camps. Mm-hmm. So I felt invincible in that after I finished, um, you know, the boot camp and I was on the plane back to the U.S. and just kind of debriefing in my head what happened. I was like, after that experience, I feel like I can do anything in the world yeah. that I said, like, I was ready to take on <laughs> bigger <laughs> things. And, and I think that carried on too to like my fearlessness in the streets of New York when mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter erupted. It just kind of carried on. Wow. And what is your life motto? Oh, I have so many little mantras. <laughs> These are Let's such hear them. questions. <laughs> I'm um, so excited to hear your little mantras. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they don't sound too like fortune cookie-ish, but one of them is... Um, <laughs> Be I think you've proven that, that you're not cliche, oh. so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. One of them is be the energy that you want to attract. And what this means for me is like, as I've mentioned many times during this interview, I really try to espouse values of love and compassion, especially in a human context. And as a result of that, I've met so many amazing, inspiring people throughout my life. And I'm not just talking about the people I've met in Jordan or or Lebanon or Iraq, but like even people, you know, people at home in the U.S., people I met on the streets this summer who took care of me and like shielded my body from like police. It's it's a really wonderful positive feedback loop when you just put out really good energy and Mm -hmm. it just comes back to you in some way or another. That's a lovely image. Yeah, that's very befitting of you. (laughs) And my last question for you is a Statement Mondays classic. I want to know your tool for individuality or your confidence booster. Here Mm. we're calling that your modern day heels. And the imagery of heels seems so irrelevant to your entire story. Uh But I think the metaphor (laughs) still holds. Uh, So, Paulina, what are your heels? Um, I would say my heels are approaching life with curiosity, inquisitiveness, and adaptability. 
And this means like always questioning why things are happening. And when information is presented to you, really taking that with a grain of salt and applying critical thinking to that and being like, okay, but why? Or like, Mm. whose narrative is this information trying to serve? To put that more in concrete terms, like I think approaching life with this childlike curiosity and always questioning things means that you're giving yourself room to experiment and play with your life. And I do hope that more people are willing to do that because it's so easy to kind of fall into this linear path where the blueprint is already set for you and your only job is to you know go get into a good school get a good job maybe you know fall in love and have kids or get married and whatever and that's like a a very common like skeleton Mm -hmm. and blueprint and again that's fine it works for some people but if you have during that your your during your lifetime if you have even this like spark of madness this little spark of madness that i mentioned or like you're curious about this one thing or you have a like a you're just like yeah you're curious about something like don't shut that down really go after it and unpack it and that might actually lead you to uh, another path or for you to to maybe go down the unconventional road as they say like don't be uncomfortable with change and just because you're looking around and no one is doing what you're doing it doesn't mean that you're on the wrong path very well said well thank you so much Paulina it has been absolutely wonderful having you here really truly enlightening thank you for having me Natalie I really appreciate it that was Paulina Ramos I am blown away. Listening to this interview makes me, it makes me question my own existence just a little bit. So in this debrief, I would like to talk about two things, which are actually connected. The first is Paulina's conflict between and eventual balance of work and activism. And the second is how she's entirely driven by her values. Cool. So as Paulina mentioned, when she went back to Uber after her experience in Lebanon, she was starting to learn how to compartmentalize her increasingly powerful moral and political views. So what that meant for her day-to-day was she was still able to perform, she was still able to kick butt as a software engineer, but she didn't blame tech companies or people who might not know all that she does about what's happening in the political realm or who actually just wanted to live cushier lifestyles. She didn't assert her own views onto others. Now, this is pretty important. I mean, she recognized that her recent political education and experiences were her own, and if she wanted to work at a normal job, she would probably have to respect other people's personal motivations. And she'd also have to work toward the larger vision of the company, and not just her own vision. That also meant that when she wanted activism to play a bigger role in her life, she left. And at this point, it almost sounds like being a software engineer is one job, and being an activist is another, so maybe it doesn't even make sense to intersect them in the same way that you might intersect work with a side passion. Take me, for example. I can bring my podcaster and my runner identities to work, more so than I imagine Paulina can bring her activism. So, on the topic of values, 
She lets this compassion drive her decision-making, which essentially enables her to laser-focus her path around this single value. I've heard this described as a value-driven lifestyle, and what I've been told is that picking out your core values is the most effective way to set and pursue goals and to live a fulfilled life. Your goals might change in your method of achieving them, but your values are the things that are constant. They'll always stay the same. And towards the end of the interview, Paulina mentions that at the moment, her job at Uber is a means to an end. And there's nothing wrong with that. You don't need to seek fulfillment from work. You can look for it elsewhere. And along those lines, this last time that she left Uber, she was opening up space for her authentic self and for this value-driven life. The key thing here is Paulina can always come back to continue to advance her more traditional career, but she can also pursue her beliefs and her dreams, whether that means alternating between the two, so work and activism, or compartmentalizing them. My big takeaway from this is don't be afraid to decide what your job means to you, even if it takes you on a totally different path than anyone else. I hope this episode leaves you inspired and maybe even a little baffled. (laughs) Anyway, if you liked what you just listened to, then please subscribe to Statement Mondays and also sign up for my behind-the-scenes newsletter, which you can find a link to on statementmondays.com or directly at statementmondays.substack.com slash welcome. And remember, be bold. Today is Statement Monday. I'm Natalie Munster, my intern is Mallory Pilon, and my audio engineer is Martin Munster. You can learn more about me and Statement Mondays at statementmondays.com or follow us on Instagram at statementmondays. I'd love to hear what you think and how you have been bold lately, so please get in touch. I'll see you next Monday. Bye!